0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Matthew Taylor and I'm the RSA's Chief Executive. It's my great pleasure to be chairing this panel today to mark the launch of the RSA's report on the future of health and social care. Uh, We've been working in partnership with Accenture to undertake a programme of work exploring public service innovation, looking at opportunities for large-scale reform through a health and social care lens. We agreed to do this work before the COVID 19 pandemic. And of course, in many ways, this crisis has shed a new light on the challenges we face. We've collaborated with a group of key leaders, strategists, researchers, practitioners to explore how we can support system change, innovation, and improvement in response to trends that are impacting the sector. Trends that include digital innovation, new ways of working, and changing relationships in communities. And places and as I've said the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated and amplified these trends it reinforces the case for change so what are we learning from the crisis and how can this inform our thinking about health and care futures as we transition out of lockdown restrictions and enter a period of stabilization and create some kind of new normal We're delighted to be joined today by a distinguished panel who can help us explore how we create a model of public services that is agile and resilient, able to cope with crisis, and meet the needs and expectations of today's citizens. So you're gonna hear from Professor Donna Hall. She's chair of the New Local Government Network, chair of Bolton NHS Foundation Trust, and an integrated care system advisor to NHS England. Donald was appointed an Honorary Professor of Politics at the University of Manchester in August 2019. Clinton Farkaston is Chair of Think Local, Act Personal, a framework for personalised care and support. He is a member of the NHS Assembly and Chair of Quality Matters, working to improve the quality of adult social care. Clinton and I support two football teams in Birmingham and the West Midlands, We played each other on Saturday, but we're not gonna make that a source of contention today, are we, Clinton? And then Matthew Swindells is digital and healthcare advisor and was previously deputy chief executive at NHS England. He continues to support NHS emerging health systems in digital transformation, recovery, and the learnings from COVID-19. So a big welcome to you all, and thank you for taking part in the discussion. Now I'm gonna start with a very broad question and I've asked you all to to compress your answers into five or six minutes so we can have a broader conversation. In the RSA's program of research and engagement, we asked questions to help us identify the alliances, the practices, the tools that will best support the health and care system if we're to move towards long-term change. And so I want to start by asking each of you to comment on the learnings for health and social care identified from our research, but also to share your thinking on what needs to happen to reform the whole life cycle of health and social care provision. Donna, I'm going to start with you.
0: Okay, thanks, Matthew. First of all, I think the research is brilliant. I think it really does hit the nail on the head on particularly the 10 lessons that are learned Um, in the the early part of the executive summary. So well done. I think it's a really uh, fantastic piece of work and the fact that it is not just about health and it's about health and social care is really refreshing because I think very often we do focus on we think NHS, purely NHS and not social care when we think about reforming the model. So thank you and and well done. For me i think the the main learning from um from COVID-19 has been how quickly we can do things when we have got a single purpose and a joint purpose and we're not spending two or three years going through a transformation program from the silo perspectives of our different organizations so we've we've kind of united across across um, certainly across nhs and council systems i think that's been a really strong partnership um, what I do think has been sadly lacking has been that embracing of of social care and particularly um, private sector home care, uh, care homes. And I do really think that is an area where, you know, when we do come out of the pandemic, we've got so much to learn about what went wrong there. And I think we did fall into the trap of just thinking of, of NHS, emptying beds, clearing wards. Um, and that's something we certainly did in, in Bolton. But we did try to work with our care home markets as well so um i know that the council councils up and down the country have actually redeployed some of their staff who've been unable to go to work into care homes so for for me one of the big lessons is how do we work with the private sector um and i'm not so sure whether that comes out of the report you know i really do think we've got a whole um job of work to do in embracing the, the private sector i think a lot of private sector businesses will go out of business as a result of of COVID nineteen, they, they were marginal in terms of business profitability. Anyway, some of them, um, and I think now with the the kind of um, social distancing, with the um, with with uh, changes to the workforce as a result of, of, of Brexit, then I do think the whole market is going to fall. At the whole bottom is going to fall out of the private care home market. So I think think we do need a new model of social care, completely, radically reformed model of social care. Um, I think uh, we've seen um, you know some awful situations where people have been you know virtually whole care homes have been infected and it hasn't been picked up through the national test and trace system and people have been kind of just left cut cut adrift so lots and lots of learning there for for the private sector market something we did in in Wigan was we had an ethical home care framework with private sector providers and that might be something that could be replicated look to be replicated nationally. I think another thing that doesn't come out for me as strongly maybe in the report that is really important is is the social contract with residents. It talks about public health messaging, which is really important, but for me, the thing that's been writ large across this whole pandemic is it's a very um, fragile relationship of trust between citizen and state throughout. And there have been times where it's been very stretched. I won't go into when, but I think we can we can remember when that was. Um, and for me, it's all about how do we rebuild that trust, but also that social contract where we are working together with residents in a towards a, a joint purpose. And I think that's not just for health and care, but across the, the local economic recovery, um, the whole resetting of, of the whole fabric of society. I think that social contract, going back to that, is something that, again, we did in Wigan. Um, and I know others are doing it elsewhere as well. Lots of London boroughs starting to embrace this, cooperative councils but I think it's a fabulous report, really brilliant report. It hits the nail on the head in so many areas. Maybe um, the private sector care market, the social contract and neighbourhood working could be areas that could be fleshed out a little bit when, it, when it's launched. But those, those are my key kind of findings from what you've done. So thank you.
1: Well, thanks, Donna. And, and to ask you a supplementary question, you know, I'm an old bloke and I think people have been talking about the need to have a more joined up approach to health and social care almost my entire adult life Mm -hmm. do you you think why let's be optimistic what 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 is there about this moment this crisis what's happened Uh, and clearly in our report our one of our three scenarios uh, advocates a much more kind of joined up approach what is there that might lead us to believe that this time it could be different donna
0: I think because of the differential impact um, social care isn't obviously just about care homes but that's what people have seen and people who haven't had any family members or any experience of what happens in a care home suddenly it's been brought um, to, into sharp focus as a result of the pandemic so I think this time is a turning point for social care it really is um, I think the fact Hilary Cotton pointed out hasn't she in, in her book Radical Help that the reason social care isn't funded in the same way the NHS is is that when Beveridge wrote the um, created the welfare state, women? It was assumed that women would do social care, so care was never properly funded right from the creation of the welfare state, and that's never it's never been addressed by subsequent governments. So, I think it does need a proper footing, being put on a, the same footing as the NHS. Um, I'm ambivalent about whether it should be we should have a national health and care service. Like, you know, I know um, the mayor of Greater Manchester wants that, and I think he did when he was. Um, Health secretary as well, but I do think it's got to be local. You know, I I love Clinton's work. I think it's brilliant. For me, it's all about local assets, local communities. The the community and voluntary sector are the best providers of care very often, and they are cut out very often of national models. So, you know, it's very difficult for um, a brilliant community organisation in Birmingham providing mental health support, for example, to win a national tender, a national contract. But the care that they provide will be so much better than some. You know, nationally procured, faceless, bureaucratic solution. So, for me, it's got to be that local um, construction from the bottom up, social care, councils, working with their NHS partners and with primary care within the locality.
1: Great. Well, Clinton, you've been set up there by Donna, uh, referring to your way of thinking about these issues. So, over to you.
2: Thank you for the opportunity to participate on our future of health and social care. And the, the report was really useful and the learnings from that as a a black disabled man who experiences health and social care. I'd just like to share a a few points. The NHS saved my life in 1995. I experienced an appalling, unprovoked uh, attack, repeatedly being stabbed 26 times, resulting in life-changing injuries. That is a story for another day. But the wonderful people of the hospital saved my life. And and, and since then, I've constantly relied on our beloved NHS to enable me to be as healthy as possible. But social care in 1997 changed my life so I could start living again. And this is particularly remarkable when you consider that I refused to let my social worker inside my front door for several weeks, Uh, but my social worker supported me to live my beautiful, ordinary, and good life. When I talk about a better future of health and social care, the dream is what I and other dreamers want. And this leads me uh, to the greatest dreamer uh, of our age, and that's uh, stealing from Martin Luther King, who said, the time is always right, uh, to do what is right. If it's right for, for us to dream as children, it's also right for us to dream as adults. We all want to live in a place we call home, with people and things we, uh, we love, in communities where we look out for one another, doing the things that matter to us. That's the social care future we seek. And if you want to know more about the, uh, the vision, Please visit uh, hashtag socialcarefuture. But this is a moment where we must stand for and with each other across our differences uh, against anything and anyone who seeks to divide us. At Think Local, at Personal, we have created an innovation in um, community centered support directory that looks at three themes we have focused on. One, developing uh, the asset based. Area model in more depth. Two, redesigning commissioning so it supports innovation by becoming more citizen led. And three, taking self directed support back to its roots so it affords real choice and control, enables people to connect and contribute. Because of the time, I'm going to focus on just one uh, thing developing the asset based area or strength based. Model is part of the innovation, like I said, in community centered support, staying well and connected to others and resilient. It recognizes that we need to lead from a place of trust. Donna touched on it that we all are aware of the imbalance in power of individuals and communities, power over our lives, where we feel we have no control or choice to feel valuable not vulnerable think about feeling valuable for a moment and not vulnerable the power of coming together with people and communities for common good and common purpose it embeds that vision that has to start with values behaviors that are inclusive of us all and it reduces the inconsistent experience that many people with lived experience constantly mention feeling our human potential is not cultivated and how we are surviving but not thriving and how the fault lines of inequality have widened in this pandemic but there are some glimmers of hope if you look for example stronger together thorac promotes local and community activities it strengthens uh, the connections between people stronger together is also encourages local people to have a greater say what happens in their neighborhood and it takes control over where they live and the decisions that affect us but also your road is my road is our road and i talk about some hopes for the future after the pandemic is over and lockdown has lifted and one of the biggest surprises was how much community spirit was already there. Mm-hmm. So Thurrock have dreams where we all continue to be great neighbors and as uh, fellow dreamers. If you want to know more, check them out. Thank you.
1: Clinton, that's so powerful. I mean, one of the, as you say, we've learned a lot in the last few months. And, and, I'm, and there's kind of two things that stand out to me. On the one hand, there's the mutual aid movement, which kind of grew spontaneously from the community up and saw you know, thousands of communities, tens of thousands of communities creating kind of local structures, often through nothing more than, a, than WhatsApp conversations to make sure that people who are isolated in that community were getting support. And then we see the, the the mobilization of anger, but also of aspiration and demand for change that's happened around Black Lives Matter. If we could tap into that willingness to support each other on the one hand, and that desire for change in patients for change then it feels as, as you've suggested anything's possible But in your experience what are the biggest barriers in the health and social care system to being able to tap into that kind of bottom-up energy to tap into those assets you've described
2: some of the barriers is around like i said the, the power imbalance um if you see the, the two big structures of nhs and uh, adult social care it's the relationship it has with uh, its citizens. It sees sometimes citizens as passive recipients, not as an um, uh, uh, equal re- uh, relationship that is adult to adult, not parent to child. And that is different relationship. And this has um, manifested itself differently in the pandemic because we've uh, the rule books had been th- thrown out the window because you know, what would normally take, you know, years to do, we've done in in weeks, because we've had to. So, you know, um, the relationship has definitely changed, but there is still some uh, fault lines in uh, um, inequality that needs to be looked at, and they're not just at an individual level, there are uh, systematic and structural uh, uh, inequalities that need to be addressed.
1: And, and bringing the community and particularly communities that have been not had their voice heard in the past into that commissioning process, that's a really important part of that, isn't it Clinton?
2: Most definitely, and um, every, uh, you know most communities want their opportunity to be in, uh, involved to shape the future, you know because we all have dreams, wishes and hopes, but how do we uh, enable that to flourish?
1: Brilliant. Well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll come back to you in a a few minutes. And we've heard from from Matthew. Uh, Matthew, I'm interested in your perspective. I mean, having worked in uh, government and and advising all sorts of people across the health and social care system, I guess, you know, for you for many years, the issue has been about how do you bring the future into the present? How do we bring the possibilities of technology and other things into our system and to accelerate uh, change? I'm interested in your perspectives on the question and whether or not you think what's happened in the last few months will accelerate change.
3: Thank you, Matthew. Yes, and I think that's, uh, as you said right at the start, it's worth remembering that we started this report pre COVID 19 outbreak because uh, NHS and social care were facing a set of significant challenges, you could call them crises, at that moment in time already. We saw in the NHS long waits for a and and outpatients and surgery, slow access to um, life-changing treatments, about a third of hospital beds at that time had got people in them who didn't need to be in hospital. They needed care, but they didn't need to be in a hospital bed. And to the extent we were taking away people's liberty by saying the only place that we could manage to provide a place of safety for them were, uh, was in hospital. And the social care and residential uh, domiciliary services were teetering on, on, on the brink of economic viability all, all over the country, and care for people with mental health problems and with learning disabilities, despite having been a five-year priority for NHS England, still hadn't broken through to be on a par with physical medicine. So we had a whole set of real challenges that we set off this report to try and look at. And then COVID-19 happened, and, and, and I think to the nuts of your question, um, all that's done is just highlight those issues it hasn 't said now here 's a completely different set of issues. We saw an extraordinary response from uh, from the NHS and as somebody with a 30 year career in the NHS including as a hospital chief executive' really proud of my colleagues and uh, uh, across the NHS for the way they did respond but perhaps the big mistake was to view this as an NHS problem. Uh, we learned, you could say, we, we learned from the pictures from Italy of their hospitals overrun. We didn't learn from the pictures of, from Seattle of their care homes unable to cope. And uh, we ended up uh, with, a, with a lopsided response um, where the care sector didn't get the same level of support for access and training in using PPE, access to testing, um, access support in designing policies around cohorting patients, um, the growth, of capacity, when we look at the phenomenal work to create the Nightingale hospitals, there wasn't a matching piece of work on on, on the social care side. Um, And the NHS stood up its workforce internally, but we didn't get a massive increase in the number of nurses and doctors available to care homes to support them. Um, We also saw um, the rush to digital within the NHS, which which has been an extraordinary, we probably delivered 10 years worth of change in 10 weeks. but we also have uh, have left ourselves a legacy here, which is that um, the most excluded, the most vulnerable, have been left further behind, that digital works for the people the digital works for. And we have broken through the idea that it doesn't work for most people, for the vast number of people. This has been a huge step forward. But if you are uh, not digitally connected, if you're not digitally literate, if you're elderly and confused, these new ways of stepping forward, of, of accessing healthcare, are not brilliant. And we need to say, well, Let's let, How do we bank the, the tremendous gains but, but move forward from there? And I think that's where the report um, is it, so strong, um, in that it says that we need to view health and care um, as one, both for um, pandemic readiness in the future, but just as importantly for liberty and health and prevention and the things that are the core of our, of our health and care system. Um, and we need to put the care system on the same footing um, and it's almost a psychological step forward as, much, as well as an economic one that um, when the NHS came under trouble with uh, uh, for personal preventative equipment, the army was brought in to help sort that out. Where was the army coming in to make sure that every care home in every town could get access and training and using PPE? Um, similarly, uh, when we needed to get testing scaled up, we brought in the military. Where was, it? Where was the military response to getting testing into every care home? And, and we need to and that's, that's partly about money, but it's mostly about how do you think about these things and how do you plan them and, um, and, and how do you organise them and how do you say, well, if digital has been transformational in healthcare, um, I've talked to a GP who uh, says that they now do 85% of their appointments online, they think maybe uh, 65% is the right number in the future, but that's an awful lot more than they were doing four months ago. How do we get every care home, every nursing home, every domiciliary visit digitally connected so that when you need advice and support, you can get access to a GP or to a pharmacist and so on? And that bigger thought requires us to think about health and care um, as one. Um, and it needs to think about what is the balance between the centre and the local. This centre you talked about, about communities, um, some things you have to plan and run from the centre, but innovation works better from the bottom up. Um, and we have seen um uh, writ large across the volunteers, the big national initiative about volunteering was not the transformation experience. The transformation experience was every ward, every town, every community with its own volunteers stepping up and making sure that food was delivered to uh, to the vulnerable and, and to those that needed it. And and that is a f- how we get that balance right. I've I spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs who've been frustrated that the bottleneck at the centre to offer their innovation has stopped them from being able to get innovation out. And when they started talking locally to health and care, they could move more quickly and do more. And getting that balance right, um, I think is important. Um, And the last thing I think from our recommendations, the 10th recommendation is around data insight. And I really hope that this could be the moment when we put Cambridge Analytica behind us and create more of a sense of trust about how data can do good, Um, because, we use the data in the NHS to, to identify in a matter of days 2.2 million vulnerable people that we could advise directly, reach out to with food parcels, that, because because we knew that nationally. The UK is leading the world in identifying the first medicines that appear to have an impact on COVID-19 in the body and on, on, on vaccines. And it's just a little glimpse into what we could be doing for the public if we could create that sense of trust between Government and agencies and the public about how we use data um, to do good and to when we think about the scenarios, there is a real risk that NHS and social care slide back into the battles of the old, um, that we roll back into the scenario two of the status quo. Um, uh, and the NHS is currently deep down focused on recovering the lo- the people who are currently living in pain because they've not had their hip replacement. All of those focuses uh, 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 needs to be done. But if we don't have that profound change quickly about this needs system planning, we need to bring together health and care and the voluntary sector to solve, not just the NHS's problems, but health and care's problems simultaneously. I don't think we can wait for legislation in five years time. The planning today needs to be learning from what's happened over the last 12 weeks and say if we go back to doing what we've always done you will have a social care sector that as Donald was saying starting to fall apart because of the economics of it the healthcare will never recover its waiting lists people with mental health problems will never get back to the care that they that, that, that they need um, and it's really a, the responsibility of local systems health and care and voluntary sector kind of, to park their egos at the door and work out what the public needs
1: Well, thank you for that, Matthew. And as we move the conversation on a little bit more, uh, I want to start with you. One of the three scenarios, you refer to the scenarios in the report, is we we refer to it as pandemic NHS. And I guess, in a way, that's slightly a reference to Donna talked about kind of national health and social care service. So the, the thought there, the scenario there, is that, you know, at the very superficial level, the public's attitude will be, well, the NHS has responded very well to this crisis and we feel an incredible gratitude to it and, and, and partly because of the terror we had at the beginning about how the NHS might not be able to cope, whereas social care as we've heard uh, from Donna uh, in particular has had enormous problems, you know the, the danger is that for politicians the answer will be simple and it will be simply to say well we need to create a kind of national system. Uh, um, a, a national NH, NHS type system really basically to somehow pull social care into that national system to determine it top down, to use technology in a top down way. Now, you've, you've already said, Matthew, you don't think that's quite the right way of going about things. But, And I know this is a complex question, but how, how can we best understand, about the, what is the principles that should underpin our understanding of the relationship between the national framework and local autonomy and initiative?
3: Yeah, so I think that that I mean, the NHS has in itself um, a needs to unwind some of its centralisation now. That that we go, we're, we're the NHS is heading into its planning phase for uh, how do you prepare for winter because we have we have a flu season coming towards us. This uh, kind of all of the usual things that impact on health and care are coming alongside COVID, so we need to do that. But um, we also need. Uh, and, and I, in some ways, I think going back to the status quo is more is more risky than the centralization, but it isn't a long term solution that what we need to do is be able to bring together uh, a degree of uh, of coordinated planning where you can look across the country but you're not trying to define for Bolton the right answer while sitting in the elephant and castle, but you are making sure that across the whole of the country you can see uh, that uh, everyone is covered. That there is a, that there is a consistency of uh, of, of response to, to the challenge. And so, so I think in that balance, right, um, part of the learning that needs to be taken out of, of, of COVID is that all of the centralization hasn't been a success. Um, it's it's a really good way of getting stuff moving, but if you don't if you disconnect that and people become automatons locally, just carrying out the le- you spend more time discussing what the guidance means and less time working out what needs to be done and I, and I think that is it's a really hard management challenge but but I uh, 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 a bit of that command and control to get the two sectors or the three sectors working together is necessary but if you try and run the whole thing from the center you will kill innovation and you will end up with something moving really slowly. And Clinton I mean the-
1: back to your kind of emphasis on the role of the citizen in the community, because it's always felt to me that the most effective way to join up services is if you truly start from the needs of the individual in the community, because people don't walk around and say, well, I've got a set of health needs and a set of social care needs. They're a human being, and as you vividly described yourself, they have different needs at different times. So I, I spend a lot of time talking to local authorities who, who say, well, we need to devolve power locally to empower people. But then I often talk to citizens who will be as disillusioned with the town hall as they are with Whitehall. Do you have any thoughts on what local government needs to do if it really is to demonstrate that it has this capacity to draw on the assets of individuals and communities and that, as Matthew suggested, we should try, if we can, to devolve more power to that level?
2: The conversation that we've been having locally and nationally about this, there needs to be uh, the question really needs to be rephrased. We need to look at what can um, central, only central government can do? What can uh, local, only local uh, government can do? And then do the same with institutions, organisations, and businesses. And then what can communities can do and individuals? At the moment, we keep thinking. It's not either or, it's all of those, but we need to see what leverages or levers each of those components can do that can enable, you know, not just surviving. Because most, uh, from the citizens' point of view, all that we want is a life. So what we want, uh, if we start off with what matters most to the individual, what can all the different systems, how can we create that leverage that enables us not to, we don't care what's behind us. All we want is in those moments of times, like I, I shared about the experience I've had, all I was bothered about was, you know, I had to use mental health services. I had to use lots of different services, but all I wanted was, you know, the services to enable me to live the life that I wanted. I wanted to, be connected to friends family my loved ones you know those are the things that we need to look at and the values behind that has come to the forefront for me we have in this pandemic we have thought uh, thought about monetary value you know and i'm not saying you shouldn't think about monetary uh, value but you don't start off with monetary value we need to look at as a nation Health and well-being—the by of that will enable the economic benefit to the nation. But we don't start with that, and then we only see value attributed to citizens of, you know, uh, monetary value. We don't see the other gifts and talents that we've got, and that's why, for me, the the language uh, around this, even when um, we talk about uh, I'm on the shielding list. Of, I hate the word vulnerable, you know, but it's, uh, it's, a, um, it's a situation that makes me vulnerable, not uh, uh, um, my label as a disabled person that ticks a lot of uh, um, uh, tick lists for people. And we need to relook really look at how we talk about people and communities but, doesn't the, but it doesn't the system
1: as well, Clinton, add to that? Because I, I remember many years ago really being struck by, and we had a conversation at the RSA with some mothers of children with learning disabilities, and they were very feisty, and they were arguing very strongly for a system that, that looked at the, the, the abilities and the talents and respected their children. But halfway through the seminar, one of these mothers, I think she was from Liverpool, said look the reality is i spend half my time fighting for my son to be considered as a full human being and respected as a full human being and the other half of the time trying to make myself seem as pathetic as possible because that's the only way to get resources out of the local authority because in the end they distribute resources depending upon your kind of need so that's a kind of trap isn't it and and i can't see any way out of that trap unless there's a, a significant investment of resources do you think that's right
2: Yeah, and and we have to have the conversation about how, you know, we talk about rights, with rights, there's responsibilities, you know, but we often say rights, but we never talk about responsibilities, but there's responsibility of uh, central government, there's responsibility of local government, there's responsibilities with institutions and business and communities and individuals. We need to uh, create a new, um, uh, uh, um, it's a new future uh, and a new relationship with all of those dynamic parts in the system. And the, to pick up on, uh, I think it was Malcolm's, um, um, Matthews. Ma- sorry, uh, uh, Matthew's, uh, 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 he said about, you know, about um, care homes. We have to reimagine the future of uh, accommodation because for, for me, I started off with the, you know, the, the vision, uh, you know, of a place called home, you know, and, and it's, it's talking about what those future accommodations or care models might be. That's not every, you know, my, my mother is 83. My dad died uh, four years ago, in November, but she still lives at home, 83 year old, and she's got a personal assistant that enables her to live the life that that's important to her. We can do this. Uh,
1: Donna, I, you know, it seems to me with with both Matthew and Clinton and it's my view as well, it's in the report that that we would want a system where there is a stronger component of local uh, coordination, local autonomy, partly so that places can respond to their communities and engage their communities. but. I completely understand the kind of pressures local authorities have been under recently as because of austerity, but still, you know, I look at different local authorities and you see very kind of different mindsets. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, We at the RSA have worked with various kind of social enterprises interested in kind of social care employment, and they have found local authorities who because of the way in which they use agency workers are paying, you know two or three times the going rate to the agency to employ the staff but very little of that money ever gets down to the staff or to take another example one of you know, my other roles is working on labor market enforcement for the government and some local authorities you know they they commission their own social care services but they take no interest in the market as a whole whereas other local authorities i think Nottinghamshire is very good on this they take responsibility for the overall social care marketplace and trying to ensure good employment standards, not just for the people that they directly fund, but for the system as a whole. So as somebody who thinks very deeply about the future of local government, what is the kind of mindset shift that is required in local government if they're going to take on greater responsibilities?
0: I think it's a shift away from um, a state paradigm, away from the market paradigm that's driven social care to a large extent, over towards a community paradigm, which is something that we've been talking about for a while in, in New Local Government Network, which is thinking, as Clinton has just described, the, about the person building relationships into the, into the way that all public servants in the place relate to individuals. They don't see them as a unit of need, which is very often what happens. Um, and we build a completely different relationship. It's back to the social contract, isn't it? The contract between central and local, the contract between between public servants in a locality and residents. And I think we've, you know, we're far too tied up on KPIs on measuring KPIs, and we're looking at the wrong thing. So I'll give you a practical example of this. We. Um, you know in looking at KPIs in a hospital setting, you can hit all the targets but still fail. Mm. so you can I'm sure you're you're aware of this, but we we had a guy who was turning up at our A and E every single day for a year. but because we were um, because we were hitting the uh, the four hour target, no one had had that different conversation with him about is everything okay? How are you doing? how you know how's your mental health? How can we help you in a different way? What kind of things do you enjoy doing? You know, no one wants to, no one has an aspiration to be a recipient of services. That's not what people want. As Clinton said, people want to live a life and be happy and, you know, live with their loved ones and and enjoy themselves. And we don't seem to run public services with um, building relationships in. Love is one of the main drivers of people's behavior. You know, I've only ever worked, really, because I love my family and I want to provide for them. But we seem to design things around robotic institutions rather than human beings. So for me, again, you're absolutely right, Matthew. Local government is such um, a a very diverse set of (laughs) 400 different types of organisations. And I mean, we work with about 70 in New Local Government Network, and they're all really determined to pass power and control down to the down to communities and to enable community, brilliant community initiatives and projects, because it works, it's cheaper, it's much more effective and it works. Um, So again, you mentioned before, uh, some places don't take responsibility for the whole of the care market as they should. It really is their responsibility. Uh, Some people are worried that by giving services to community groups, they're gonna dilute them in some way. But I think it strengthens them, definitely. You know, and and getting everybody who's working in the place, working around individuals, families and community organisations, I think is the future of public services. So more of an enabling role to bring out the um, the brilliance of the community and voluntary sector that's there. It just needs funding, it needs support and it needs that permission to innovate, which they're so good at, so much better than clunky public services usually.
1: I'm going to ask you all one last question and we've only got a minute left so I'm only going to give you one sentence to answer it and sorry to spring it on you and I'll start with you Donna and that is it's around leadership my my sense is that in the post-COVID world and let's hope we're moving towards a post-COVID world here even if obviously we're not across the world yet we will need different kind of leadership skills And, and 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 there's been a lot of hope in this conversation which is great and there's hope in our report But one of the sobering things I've heard in the last few days is from a good friend of mine who's very senior in the London Health Service, who said that during the crisis, there was a a spirit of collaboration. There was a spirit of all that mattered was the patient and uh, dealing with the crisis. And so kind of petty rivalries and all of this kind of bureaucracy fell to the side because everyone was focused. And he said to me, you know, as things get back to normal, I see the old leadership management behaviors creeping back in the macho management the competition the bureaucracy so the question for all of you in one sentence is what what, what do you see as being the critical leadership challenge if we're going to create the social and health care system that we need starting with you donna
0: i think it's about anthropology building anthropology into our public service systems by listening harder to residents and staff and redesigning services around their needs
1: and their desires clinton i'm i'm guessing you're not going to disagree with that
2: no uh the only thing um i would probably add with that is, is compassionate uh, uh uh leadership and uh donna said it in the in, in the beginning of her talk love love for one another
1: brilliant
3: and matthew Maybe I can be a bit more prosaic than love one another and say, if people are judged by the individual success of the institution that they're responsible for, they will be motivated and driven to have to make that institution succeed, regardless of, of the consequences around it. And we need to make it clear that this generation of council chief executives and hospital chief executives the success is the success of their system not the success of their institution because the institutional focus encourages the shifting of responsibilities and sometimes those shifting of responsibilities is the shifting of real people with real lives backwards and forwards between institutions and 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 i think that that there, there's a whole learning that's, ne- that's needed for, for leaders, but it will start at the top. If people are held accountable and their jobs are dependent on the success of their individual institution, then it drives a set of behaviors which in the end mm. are not good for the, for the health of the population as a whole.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that sounds like we need more shared outcome goals and fewer con- contested institutional <laughs> objectives. Look, I'm sure I'm not the only person listening to the three of you who kind of thinks well if only the government would set up a commission with Donna hall clinton farkerson and Matthew swindells and say to them you design the help future of health and social care then everything would be fine Uh, it's been a wonderful conversation you can access the rsa report on the future of health and social care by visiting our website and please keep in touch if you'd like to hear more about our ongoing work in this area you'll also Find lots more information about the RSA's work and links to our Global Fellowship Changemaker community. So thank you again to our esteemed panel and to our valued partner, Accenture, and thank you all for watching.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.